Psalm 93. And as you're turning there, let me remind you that uh, next Sunday, for those of you who would like to go, this is another food announcement, <laughs> that, that anybody who would like to, after Sunday school class, we're going to go to El Phoenix, Maine El Phoenix, and just buy your own lunch, and uh, we'll have a long table, anybody who wants to go can go. You need to let Pam know, raise your hand Pam, so you, they all know who you are. So anyway, we're in Psalm 93. Now, Psalm 93 is the first of a group of psalms uh, that proclaim that God is king. Okay? And you'll see that in verse 1. Look at what it says there. Psalm 93 in verse 1, it says, The Lord reigns. So there is the first of a group of psalms that proclaims that God is king. The Lord reigns. You also see this in... Psalm 95. Look at Psalm 95. And look down at verse 3. For the Lord is the great God and the great King. You see that? Then look at Psalm 96. And look at verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. There is his reigning. He is a king. And then again in Psalm 97, in verse 1, look what it says. The Lord reigns. And then look over at Psalm 98 and verse 6. Psalm 98 and verse 6. With the trumpets and the sound of a horn, shout joyfully before the Lord, look, the King. And then look at Psalm 99 and verse 1. The Lord reigns. You see that? So the only psalm in the next several is Psalm 94 that does not mention that God is King. And this group of psalms is, are known as enthronement psalms. And they were probably sung during annual festivals. Specifically, they were sung, however, when a king was inaugurated. Because the king, like King David, uh, served as God's ruler on earth and served as God's uh, representative on earth. So while God reigned from heaven... He ruled over earth through a human instrument known as the king. Okay. And probably these psalms were sung during the inauguration or annual observance of the king being inaugurated. And here's how I'm going to outline the psalm. And we're doing three parts. Psalm 1, Psalm 93, verses 1 and 2. The Lord rules or reigns over earth. That's verses 1 and 2. He reigns over the earth, over the world. Verses 3 and 4, he reigns over the seas. Okay? And then verse 5, he reigns over Jerusalem. Okay? So, the message of the psalm is that the Lord reigns. He rules. He's a king. This was the message that John the Baptist preached. He said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, if there's a kingdom, guess what you have? Then you have a king. So he said, the kingdom and the arrival of the king is at hand, and he was preparing them for the arrival of the kingdom. And the preparation that they needed was to repent and believe, and he pointed them to Jesus, who was going to be God's representative, representative king on earth. So, let's look at this psalm in the way I've just described, and let's look at verses 1 and 2. The Lord reigns over the world. Now look at verse 1. The Lord reigns. 
Notice, he continually reigns. You see that? Not he reigned, he reigns. Presently, he reigns. Uh, this is going to set the stage for the rest of the psalm. This is an exclamation. If you want to know what he's saying, he starts it off with, imagine being this is a worship service, since psalms were sung, and this is like a call to worship. And here's the person, the worship leader gets up and he says, the Lord reigns! And that's how the service starts. Only they may sing it. We don't know how it was done. <coughs> I just almost ruined my throat right there. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't screamed that long in a long time. <laughs> okay, so we, this is the announcement of his reign. Look at that. The announcement of his reign. Now look at the magnificence of his reign in verse 1. He is clothed with majesty. Now obviously this is a visionary description of God. No one has seen God except in visions. And this psalmist imagines or he envisions the majesty of God's reign. God is reigning and he is in full attire. Remember Isaiah when he saw the Lord? He said, I saw the Lord. You know, he was sitting on a throne. He was high and lifted up and his train, you know, his robes and everything just filled the temple. And so the psalmist says something like that. The Lord reigns in majesty. He's clothed in this full royal attire. Sometimes Queen Elizabeth dresses ordinarily. She just wears a yellow dress and some pearls. And that's it. And a hat. Yes, and a hat. Which, she does have a purse. Holding it like this. But other times she is dressed in royal attire and she will wear some long gown, she will have her crown on her head, she will sit on a throne, uh, she will wear the crown jewels, and she will, even times when she's sitting on a throne for special occasions, she may even have some sort of a scepter in her hand. And so what the psalmist sees God is God's magnificent reign. Now we see the power of his reign. Look in verse 1, right in the middle of verse 1, the power of his reign. He has girded himself with strength. Now the word girded there means that he has prepared himself for battle. You know, in those days they didn't wear slacks like we have. They wore robes. And when they were ready to go to the battle, they would reach down and they'd get the back of that robe and they would pull it up. And they would tuck it into their sash, sort of forming... Uh, you know, slacks, in a sense. And they girded themselves for battle. And here it says he girds himself for strength. And that means that he is getting ready to go out and he's ready to fight a war. He's putting on the armor for a battle. He wins this battle, according to the psalmist. You look at the rest of verse 1 and it says this. Surely, because now he's girded himself, and look at the result. Surely the world is established so it cannot be moved. And God has done that. Surely it is established so it cannot be moved. So God sets the world, in a sense, in, a, in an orbit. Our world is, been, is in an orbit and it cannot be moved. And we, scientists might tell us we're being sucked into some black hole and all this kind of stuff, and that's fine if they want to say that. And from a scientific standpoint, that may be the case.
But what he's saying is God has fought a battle, and as a result, the world has been established, and it's in his control. He not only creates the world, but he sustains the world in a sense. Okay? So it doesn't teeter and it doesn't totter, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Now look at the basis of this world being established. Look at verse 2. The basis for the world being established is this. Your throne is established. Do you see that? Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. The earth is established because God's throne has already been established. How long has that throne been established? How long has God been in existence? What does it say at the, in verse 2? You're for what? Everlasting. So what we have is that uh, God's reign, the person of God himself, precedes the establishment of the world, precedes creation. God's no upstart deity. He's a deity that has been around for everlasting. He's been around forever. Okay. And apart from his rule, this world wouldn't be established. Apart from his rule, this world would be in turmoil. Okay. It would be teetering. It would be tottering. It's because he reigns that creation is stable. So here we see God is the creator. God is the stabilizer of the world. Okay. So that's God. He rules the world. Now the next section we come to are verses 3 and 4. And this is God rules the seas. So look at those verses. Look what it says. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. And for a third time, you want to know what their voice is, you're going to find out. The floods have lifted up their waves. The Lord on high is mightier. He's mightier than these big waves that are pounding. He is mightier than the noise of many waters. He's mightier than the waves of the sea. Now, what in the world is going on here? This threefold comment that about floods and about waters can be interpreted in different ways. First of all, this, these verses can simply mean that God's the master of the sea. He rules the sea. And that's the literal interpretation. Floods come up, wind blows, God's mightier than any of it. He controls the sea. Jesus said to the sea, be still and the sea was still. That's a literal interpretation. That's interpretation number one. What else could verses three and four mean? The seas could be symbolic of the nations. A lot of times in the Bible, the sea represents the Gentile nations who are in rebellion against God and God's people. But God defeats the nations. God reigns over the nations. He not only reigns over his people, but he reigns over the nations. Whether they believe it or not, whether they realize it or not, God is the king of Russia, God's the king of Egypt, whether they realize it or not, whether they're in rebellion against God or not, God rules the nations. So that could be the second explanation. Now I'm going to give you a third explanation. And this explanation says that the seas and the floods represent chaos. Okay? Chaos. 
Before the world was created, as we know it, there was chaos. And God had to gird himself in strength and defeat chaos before he could establish the world. Now this idea is based on Genesis 1.1, where it says this. And we're going to look at this in a minute. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And those words translate into the word chaos. In the beginning, guess what there was? Chaos. The next verse says, And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And he conquered, he conquered this chaos, and he created the world. Now, Dr. Criswell held to a theory known as the gap theory. And the gap theory was that between verses 1 and verses 2, there's a gap. And there's a gap of, it could be, millions of years. Dr. Criswell never knew how many, how many years were between verses 1 and 2. But verse 1 says, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. That's verse 1. Now a gap exists, according to Dr. Criswell. And all there was was chaos. because. And then the next thing it says, and the earth was without form and void, and there was chaos upon the face of the deep. So that's the chaos. It lasts for who knows how long. And then God basically defeats the chaos, and he creates the world as we know it, with Adam and Eve and all of that. It was during this gap, according to Dr. Criswell, when God created the angels. Because in Genesis, there's no, no mention of angels anywhere being created. It creates Adam and Eve, and, you, and then suddenly there's the devil. He shows up. Where did he come from? Where was he created? We said, well, he was an angel that was fallen. Well, when did God create that? According to Dr. Criswell, all that was created during this gap. And the angels rebelled against God in heaven. God cast them down to earth. And the world became chaos. And then God steps in and he basically recreates the world. That was Dr. Criswell's theory. Now, very few people hold to that theory anymore. But Dr. Criswell wasn't far off. And I'm going to show you what major biblical scholars now believe. Okay? So I want you to turn over to Genesis 1. And you're going to see how this all fits together with Psalm 93. So if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm or Genesis 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's one on the table. And I'll show you how this all works out. That was Dr. Criswell's theory. Let me now show you what most Bible teachers believe today. Okay. Now look at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Most Bible teachers say that is a summary of the next couple chapters. That's a summary statement. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The next verses tell us how that happened. You want to know the details? Here's the details. Okay. Now watch this. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. That's the waters. <clears throat> so there was chaos. Here, you wonder how, 
how God created everything? Well, first of all, there's just chaos. That's what the Genesis says. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. <clears throat> now notice in verse 2, you see the word darkness there. Do you see that? So look how God conquers the darkness. Verse 3, God said, let there be what? And see, the darkness was conquered. And there was light. God conquered this chaos. God saw the light that it was good. He divided the light from the darkness. So on and so forth. Look at verse 6. God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Now we have waters there in verses 2, which are in chaos, like the floods and all this kind of stuff. And so what God does in verse 6, he deals with waters in the midst of the waters. And let, let us divide the waters from the waters. Notice how he conquers the waters. God made the firmament and he divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And so it was. So here we have God just doing what he wants to do with the water. He conquers them. He puts them in order. They're no longer in chaos. No longer just darkness. He conquers darkness with light. That's the waters. And if you go on, you see, for example, and it says, um, let's just skip down a little bit. You can read the whole thing later. Verse 10, it says, uh, And God created the dry land, earth, and gathered together of the waters, and he called which he called seas, and he saw that it was good. So here we have this world which was in chaos, was not producing anything, and God is starting to conquer this chaos, and he sets things in order. And then in verse 11, God says, let the earth bring forth grass, and things start multiplying and producing, and it's no longer void. Now we have life, and things are starting to be produced. So God conquers chaos. Now, that's what most Bible scholars say. Not a gap. God in the beginning created heaven and earth. How did it happen? Well, first of all, he had to conquer chaos, and then the rest of Genesis tells you, the first three chapters tell you how he creates everything. So that's the theories, okay? So I'm going to hold to the... I think all the theories are valid, but I think this chaos theory is pretty good theory. So one thing we do know, we're not certain on which theory is right, but one thing that we do know is that Genesis was not written by an eyewitness. we all agree with that? No one was there to see the creation. Uh, it was written hundreds or even thousands of years later. And it came as a revelation from God. And uh, the writer, probably Moses, m much of it at least, uh, writes down this story as he understands it. Maybe a thousand, a couple thousand, who knows how many years later. He writes it, but he wasn't an eyewitness to it. Also, what you need to realize is during that time, time of Moses and other writers of Genesis, Moses probably didn't write the last words of the five books of Moses where it says, you know what the last Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, last words say what? Moses died. Well, he didn't. And they buried him. Somebody else wrote that. Moses didn't write that in the grave. He didn't go through a medium and write that. So that's why I say other writers. But during this period of time, there were other cultures who had very similar creation stories. And all these creation stories were basically the same story. That there was chaos. And a god had to conquer the chaos, which often, the chaos often was depicted as a monster coming out of the sea, which God had to conquer in order to create the world. Godzilla, you know, type of thing. 
<clears throat> so, I, and you can, and all those stories had a bit of truth in them that were based on the true story. But eventually, over time, got distorted. And Moses writes it down, and here's the real story. And he conquers chaos, which here is depicted as floods. So, if that makes sense, uh, God basically girds himself for war. And here are his enemies, verses 3 and 4, depicted as floods that are rising up. He's mightier than those floods, as it says in verse 4. He's mightier than those floods. So here his enemies are depicted as wild, roaring waves, like hurricanes. We just had a hurricane in Taiwan that roar, and their winds are destructive, and they leave you know, destruction in their path, these violent winds. And these enemies, whoever they are, called floods are on a war path. And God girds himself and he conquers these enemies. <clears throat> Most likely demonic enemies. Dr. Criswell thought that this would have been demonic enemies. Probably is. Remember when Jesus rebukes the sea? He actually rebukes it. Same word he uses when he cast out demons. The sea is being controlled by demons. And there's just much more to the story than meets the eye. So anyway, God is victorious, and that's what verse 4 says. God on high is mightier than these things. He's mightier than the noise of many waters, than the mighty waves of the sea. He destroys chaos. <clears throat> now we have God rules over his people. Okay, so that's the last verse, verse 5. So let's see what it says. And you're going to see two sureties here. Number one, the psalmist says to God, your testimonies are very sure. That's sure, surety number one. Your testimonies are very sure. Now the word testimonies here is used 13 times in Psalm 119. That real long psalm. And the word testimonies refers to God's word, his laws, his affirmations, his precepts. And so God's word his promises, his covenant, are sure. When God enters into a covenant with his people, uh, it's infallible. They can count on it. They are trustworthy. You can tr count on God to keep his promises to his people because he's entered into a contract with his people. I was uh, coming down the road this morning, and Lynn and I were talking about the covenant, God being a covenant God, and trying to explain a lot of these things. And I said, you know, you have to realize that the God has made a covenant with, the, with these people, the Jews. He didn't make a covenant with the Hittites, the Jebusites, only with the Jews. And he gave these Jews commandments. And the people that keep the commandments are God's people. The commandments are identity marker. It identifies who God's people are. Who are God's people? The ones that keep the Sabbath. Who are God's people? The ones who put no other gods before Yahweh. He gives them these commandments that will identify them as his people. And he enters into a contract with them known as a covenant. And God says this, I will always keep my part of the contract with you. I'll never break it. I expect you to keep your end of the bargain. And if you do, I'm going to make a promise. I will bless you. If you break the covenant, I will curse you. 
Basically means I'll punish you. And I was talking to Linda. I said, well, let me think of an illustration. Maybe it'd be like you entering into a loan with the bank. And you get, a, get with the bank, and here's what the bank says. We're going to give you a loan for 30 years. Okay? I'm gonna, we're going to sign a contract. There'll be our side of the loan, and there'll be your side of the loan. Our side of the loan is we're going to give you $200,000. You have 30 years to pay it. I will guarantee you, the banker says, we'll never call your loan beforehand. You can take our word on it. That's in the contract. Your side of the loan is you have to pay a monthly payment to pay it off for 30 years. You can trust us, we'll never break our contract. But if you break your end of the bargain, guess what? There's a penalty. <laughs> and it could be we'll come and get your property. And God enters into a covenant. And so here, the psalmist says, your testimonies, your side of the bargain, are sure. We can always trust you to keep the covenant. So that's one surety. Now the next surety it's found in verse 5. It says, Holiness adorns your house. Now, where was God's house located? The house of God. Jerusalem. See, that's where the temple is. That's where the tabernacle is. And notice that God's testimonies, therefore, are given to God's people, and that holiness or righteousness, see, adorns or befits God's house which is located in Jerusalem, in the midst of his people. His people surround the temple. And the one characteristic about the temple, and even the city, is that it's adorned with holiness. Rome's not the holy city. In Bible times, Jerusalem was the holy city. And the temple was holy. And therefore you had a holy place and the inner sanctum was called what? The holy of holies See? so here's where God lives his temple is holy, his testimonies are sure, this is the second surety is that holiness adorns his temple, his house and look what it says your holiness adorns your house O Lord, for how long? forever See? So his testimonies are sure, his holiness, which adorns his house, is forever. God reigns forever. He reigns over the earth, he reigns over his enemies, chaos, or his enemies, or the sea, or however you want to say it. And finally, he reigns over his people forever. Now how in the world does God reign forever? He reigns through David, David's gone, he reigns through Solomon, Solomon's gone, he reigns through the kings of Judah, they're gone. What does it mean God reigns forever? First of all, he reigns from heaven forever. Ever. He is the king of the universe, whether people realize it or not, right? right? He always has been. But he has a plan to rule through a person on earth forever. And his plan was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why John the Baptist pointed to Jesus. And Jesus was born king of the Jews. And what did Herod want to do? Get rid of him. And Pilate eventually got rid of him 30 years later. And they put Jesus to death, put him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead, exalted him, and sat him at his right hand so that Jesus reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's what the gospel message is. Our gospel message is our God reigns. And he reigns through his son, Jesus Christ. 
And what's required of you is to bend the knee, repent of your sins, and put your faith and give your faithfulness to King Jesus. And of his kingdom, his kingdom shall never end. And then one day, the scripture says, the Lord will return from heaven, he'll come down to earth, and he'll set up his kingdom on earth. And thus, the psalmist says, the Lord will reign forever. Next week, Psalm 94. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Short verses, big message. Big message about the cosmology, big message about the creation, all these kinds of things. Theology, eschatology, angelology, kingdom theology, all rolled into one in these five verses. Oh Lord, help us to realize that it cost you to reign. You had to fight the battle for us. And now, Lord, all you're calling us to do is recognize your reign and serve you as the king of this universe. In Christ's name, amen.